Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by coronatools.com, the nation's leader in garden and landscaping tools. Listeners of The Organic View can receive 20% off their coronatools.com purchase by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. That's O-R-G-V-I-E-W. For more promotional offers, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. And don't forget to check out our contest section. Scandals and cover-ups seem par for the course when it comes to the pollution of our environment as well as the use of toxic chemicals. On today's show, Dr. Jonathan Latham, the Executive Director of the Bioscience Resource Project, is going to talk about a starting collection of documents called the Poison Papers. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Dr. Jonathan Latham. Good afternoon, sir, and welcome to the show. Hi there, June. Dr. Latham, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself as well as your research? So uh, so I'm a molecular biologist by training, and... Uh, I have uh, been writing mostly about uh, risks and hazards related to GMOs. And uh, so we have a nonprofit organization, and also we run a website called Independent Science News. So, uh, so we write about these issues, and, uh, and, but also we come across uh, issues in the chemical industry too. And so the Poison Papers Project came about because I was in contact with somebody called Carol Van Strum, who had all kinds of interesting documents that she'd collected over the years from FOIA requests and so forth from the EPA, for example, and various federal agencies. And, and she wanted to write about these, these papers, but it was difficult because they were sitting in, her, in a shed in her backyard. Can you talk about the investigation involving the industrial biotest laboratories Oh, sure I can. Industrial Biotest Laboratories was the biggest chemical testing lab in the country. This is for chemical safety. So they, uh, they, I think they did all the chemical tests on Roundup. They did atrazine. They did a whole host of other chemicals. They were, they were, they were Monsanto's number one customer, for example. They basically were found by, well, a researcher at the EPA called, a very important person called Adrian Gross, figured out that the tests that were being submitted by this company, Industrial Biotest, were, there were big problems with them. And so he organized an investigation. What it revealed was that the company was wholesalely cheating on its testing. So they weren't following protocols. They were making up data. turned out later they were forging signatures because the people in the lab wouldn't sign the reports because they didn't accept the results and they were overlooking things. The data was utterly worthless, but it was being used to approve a huge proportion. I mean, there's virtually no chemical that was on the market at the time, and many still are on the market, that wasn't approved, in, at least in part, without their data. There was hardly any chemical that wasn't approved with their data. There's an article that appears on independentsciencenews.org, which is part of the work that your team does. And there's an article written by Rebecca Wills 
I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. That's right. Yep. It's called Poison Paper Snapshot. Hojo Transcript Illustrates EPA Collusion with Chemical Industry. This is just absolutely disgusting. I just want to read just a few sentences. It says, the dead animals would decompose so quickly that their bodies oozed through wire cage bottoms and lay in purple puddles on the dropping trays. IBT even invented an acronym, TBD-TDA, for its raw safety data, later discovered to mean too badly decomposed. This is just preposterous. What went on at IBT was, you know, it was basically the biggest scientific scandal ever discovered. They did 4,500 chemical safety tests. In all probability, every single one of them was fraudulent and, and wrongly done. But what happened next was that the EPA, you know, I think you probably want to call it an open secret at EPA. They did not want to do anything about it. But because of the FDA investigation, they were forced to. So it became public knowledge. And eventually, three staff members, including the CEO of, of Industrial Biotest, were sent to prison. But what happened in the meantime is really interesting because basically in 1978, a year and a half or so after this whole thing had been discovered, the EPA held a meeting with the chemical industry in a Howard Johnson Motor Inn in Arlington, Virginia, in which they basically discussed how they would cover up this scandal. So the unacceptable outcome of this scandal for the chemical industry was to have to have their chemicals removed from the market and basically a public admission of all that had gone on, right? Because at the time, the public didn't know that there was no trial, there was no convictions and so forth. The public had no idea of what was going on. So they organized basically to kick the can down the road for another five years. They'd already kicked it down the road for two years. They organized to kick, to kick it down the road for another five years by basically EPA saying, we're going to investigate every, uh, every experiment, or not every experiment, but some of the, the crucial experiments. Well, we'll just define as a crucial experiments of IBT that to see whether any of them can be salvaged or not. And they already knew that none of them could be salvaged, but, but they decided to go through the motions of doing this process because that would buy time for the chemical industry basically toward a new test, and it would create an opportunity for EPA not to have to tell the public what the true problem was because they could just say, we're investigating it. Whereas, in fact, they already knew that all these studies, you know, they knew that EPA, was, that, sorry, IBT was shredding documents. They knew that the studies were fraudulent. They knew that, that they had to cobble together experiments from different times and places in order to reconstitute what IBT had been doing. They knew that it was all, it was basically scientific trash, but they didn't want to admit to that because that would have had to mean that the whole regulatory system was scientifically invalid and these chemicals were, were totally, there was no meaningful safety testing had been done on them. And nobody wanted to agree to that. And so they, the EPA in this meeting, they make a list of things that they consider to be acceptable, acceptable errors from IBT. So they range from everything from missing animals to experiments whose starting and ending dates don't make any sense to, to, um, to unsigned documents. So, for example, IBT began not signing documents that they were giving to EPA because they couldn't stand behind them because, you know, they rightly suspected the staff of IBT 
even thought that they would not stand behind these things, and EPA decided to overlook all of this. Dr. Latham, have there been any repercussions since you've exposed all these documents and also officially launched the Poison Papers project? I suspect that the the mainstream media is not going to pay too much attention because, uh, you know, it, it exposes some things that are very profound about our regulatory systems. So I think that, you know, I don't suppose it will be reported too widely. That will be my guess. But, you know, we live in hope, right? They might decide to to uh, to cover some of these issues. And, uh, you know, we only release them on Wednesday, so they've only been out uh, 48 hours. So it's very early days yet. You know, I think legally, you know, there's no reason why we should not be publishing these papers. They were discovered through Freedom of Information Act requests and so forth, and legal through legal discovery of legal cases and so forth. So, you know, they're all truthful statements made by the chemical industry themselves and the EPA themselves. So, so it's going to be rather difficult for them to to uh, for anybody to challenge this in court, for example. I mean the you know, the gold standard of journalism is to get somebody to basically confess, and this is a series of confessions by the EPA and the, and the chemical industry. Just out of curiosity, have you thought about working with WikiLeaks as far as trying to get more wider circulation or even anonymous? Uh, you know, we have not approached those organizations. I mean, you have to do these things in secret. You know, we basically we collected these uh, documents and we used um, uh, encrypted emails and so forth to talk among ourselves. Uh, so you can't go outside of your organization very far and start talking to a wide range of people and so forth because, you know, if you don't, unless you know these people uh, really well, uh, <clears throat> you know, then it's difficult to do that. And we, you know, we're doing this whole thing on a shoestring budget and, uh, you know, try, you know, it's difficult enough to to scan the papers, to organize the papers, to fly back and forth, to get, to get, you know, to go and, and you know, organize things and so forth. Because they, they came from New York State and they came from Oregon, so they're kind of scattered across the country, some of them. So it's been a complicated process and there's not so many of us, so, so it, was a, it was quite a challenge even to do what we did. What do you hope will happen to the publication of these papers and these documents? Well, you know, my, my hope is that people will develop a more sophisticated understanding of the problem with industrial chemicals. So standard campaigning thing is to treat chemicals as bad actors, right? So, so people want to ban Roundup or they want to ban chlorpyrifos or they want to ban something, some atrazine or whatever it is, endocrine disruptors. But the fundamental problem here is we have a society-wide unwillingness to confront the reality of chemical pollution, right? Imagine that somebody, you know, the way it manifests is, imagine that some staff member at EPA discovers that, you know, some chemical is, is hideously toxic. And we have examples of this happening in these papers, right? So, so the staff member writes to their boss, and maybe the boss is convinced, and then they pass it upstairs, but every time it gets passed upstairs, the probability is somebody will ignore it, overlook it, decide that they're not going to do anything, because basically, finally, it's going to go upstairs to the administrator of EPA, right? You know, we're going to ban some company's new chemical, and what are they going to say? 
right? They're going to say, well, the only way that I can do this is by basically having the backing of the president, because if I don't have the backing of the president, the president is going to fire me. So, so, uh, so they know they don't have the backing of the president, right? So they can't do it, right? And so they basically, the, any information that is necessary to harm companies and protect the public basically never gets out of EPA. And every no administrator or senior person at EPA ever wants to hear about all this stuff, right? So they, they all get, you know, in the papers, it's described how they never, administrators, for example, would not give, they have, EPA has a system of external reviewers. And external reviewers are often not given the data needed to make the experiments. And guess what? It's the data that would actually incriminate these chemicals. Or the data never gets shared. Anything harmful, evidence of harm, never gets shared within the EPA. Somebody stops doing it. Somebody overlooks it. So on and so forth, right? So you basically have a, a system of overlooking and ignoring chemical safety problems, right? That is what EPA is. And so if you ban one chemical and just replace it with another one, the same thing's going to happen with that chemical too, right? Every single one of these chemicals virtually, if you read the papers, has major issues with it, but nobody at EPA wants to deal with that, right? They're all perfectly happy to accept fraudulent data because that lets them off the hook, right? If you can get, if they're being presented with fraudulent data that looks superficially like it's uh, plausibly been done and boxes have been ticked and so forth, that is, that is the ideal thing for EPA, right? Because then no one at EPA has to take responsibility for the data that goes through the system. They can sign off on it and say, we saw nothing, right? So this is a systemic problem of the Environmental Protection Agency and these other agencies too, right? So, so that is the understanding that people need to have, that, that these are issues have nothing to do with individual chemicals. If you substitute glyphosate for atrazine, you're not going to be saved from anything. If you substitute atrazine for 2,4-D, you're not going to be saved from anything, right? And so this is the understanding that we would like to share with people. Thank you. How can people support your project? Oh, wow. Big donations are better than small donations. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, obviously the money is really useful to us. Uh, you know, we, we would really appreciate uh, donations to, to our project. Uh, but and there's a donation button on our page, or you can write a check and uh, go to Independent Science News or the Bioscience Resource Project. You know, we would, could really put that money to good use more. More than you know, in my humble opinion, most nonprofits. But um, but the uh, you know the other thing is to share this information, to go to our website and share these incredible stories that we you know continually try to put out. That uh, you know they're even too difficult. Many of these stories for the so-called alternative media. You know we publish stories that that even even uh, you know quite you know they're utterly truthful and backed up with or any amount of scientific evidence you care to need. But but even, uh, you know, alternative media has difficulty sharing these things. Uh, uh, nonprofits have difficulty sharing these things. Because they're, com you know, most nonprofits who work in the chemical sector, they are quite comfortable with uh, campaigning against one chemical at a time because it doesn't threaten the their budgets, so it doesn't threaten the EPA, it doesn't threaten the chemical industry, it doesn't threaten anyone, but it sounds like they're really doing something. And so, so they sort of sink into this kind of, kind of uh, system of campaigning that basically at the end of the day will achieve nothing. 
I couldn't agree more. Dr. Latham, thank you so much for your time, and I sincerely hope that you come back very soon to continue talking about the different projects that you're working on and all the different discoveries that your team is making and unveiling. The work that you do is so incredibly important, I can't tell you. I'm just so grateful that there are people like you on this planet. Well, that's kind of you to say that, June, but we can do what we didn't, you know, you're doing the sharing that I, you know, that I requested. And also, I'd like to put in a word for the Center for Media and Democracy about this. I forgot to mention them at the beginning, but, but they've really helped us with this project. And so uh, thank you, folks. Folks, please check out the companion article, which will appear on theorganicview.com. And also, please, if you can, even if it's just a dollar, please support the Poison Papers project. Thank you for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.